Jonah chapter 2, and this morning we're just going to be focused pretty much on verses 8 through 10. But um, I'll begin reading uh, from verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2. So again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. And in the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. But you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice to you. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, how we... Rejoice and give thanks to you for your word. We know it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we pray that you would truly open our our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear the truth of your word. And that as it goes forth in the power of the Spirit, we pray, Father, that it would find within each and every one of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. One of the more uh, controversial subjects among Christians, something that's been debated really for centuries in various synods, councils, uh, church courts, conferences, congregational meetings, internet chat rooms, and the comment sections of various social media outlets, and even at family gatherings and social functions, the big debate is often over God's plan of salvation and how we understand the role of man in relation to the role of God. Uh, In this debate, each side has their go-to passages that they'll quote from and use, and sometimes they may even use uh, the very same passage, but of course approach it from a very different angle. But really at the center of the debate are these questions. Is salvation by the works of man? Is salvation by the works of man plus God's grace? Where salvation by God's grace alone. Well, as you hear these debates and arguments, and as you try to discern which is the truth that is revealed in the Scriptures, it's helpful to ask yourself one simple question that will point you in the right direction. What brings all glory 
to God? This is a critical question. Because the glory of God is the end and the purpose of all things. Indeed, it was the purpose that God had in creating the heavens and the earth. It's the purpose for which He created mankind after His own image. It's the purpose for which the Lord God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to save His people from their sins. It is the purpose that we have as we seek to commit ourselves in living our lives that we would do all that we do for the glory of God. And so whatever brings God all the glory is certainly the truth. And we see this truth really throughout the Scriptures in both the Old and the New Testaments that salvation is of the Lord. And our passage this morning, we see that this is Jonah's confession as he concludes his prayer of thanksgiving from the belly of the great fish. In fact, the story of Jonah that we've recounted up to this point really displays this glorious truth in in spectacular fashion. And even here, in the conclusion of his prayer... Jonah lays out clearly what God has done, that is, what his role is in salvation, and what man is able to do as Jonah issues both a warning and a commitment in response to the deliverance that he's experienced. I want to begin, though, with Jonah's confession of faith in verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, simply it means that salvation belongs to God. It's His work. Something He alone accomplishes. Salvation isn't found in any, any, any other but God alone. It's not to be found in man. It's not to be found in the imaginations or the creations of men's hands. It's not to be found in man's will or man's flesh. The Apostle John, John 1, testifies of this. Saying, but as many as received Him, that is Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is of the Lord God alone. Those saved are born of Him by His work, by His power, by His purpose, and by His will, all to His glory alone. There's no other way that this phrase that we see that Jonah confesses could possibly be understood. How do we know? Because as we witness Jonah's experience in chapters 1 and chapter 2, we see that it can't possibly be understood in any other way. First, we remember that Jonah was in rebellion against God. God had called him to to go to Nineveh, but Jonah refused and he ran in the other direction. Jonah wanted nothing to do with God's plan and purpose. Indeed, it was because Jonah knew the very character of God, he knew that God was a God who abounds with grace and mercy, it's because of that reason that Jonah fled. Because he didn't want any part in God saving these wicked, undeserving Ninevites. 
Jonah knew that the only way for the Ninevites to be saved would be if God had mercy upon them. And the only way that God would have mercy on them is if the truth of God was proclaimed to them. And in order to have the truth of God proclaimed to them, God would send a preacher. And Jonah was to be that preacher. But Jonah wanted no part in this plan. He rejected it and he ran away from God. And as he ran away, we remember that his heart hardened against the Lord. And so hardened in his heart that he became, that he he got caught up in his sin. That Jonah had no desire, no will, or even no interest in being saved. Remember, he got caught up in a storm on the sea. But he never cried out to God to save him. He never cried out for God to even save the sailors who were on the ship, who were uh, there, uh, being exposed to God's uh, chastisement upon him. They were suffering because of Jonah's sin. Jonah never cried out for the Lord to save him. He got tossed into the sea. He descended to the bottom because he preferred death over God's salvation. But even if Jonah wanted to be saved, even if he actually did have the will or the desire to be saved, either from the storm or even from the bottom of the sea, the reality is that there was nothing he could do to save himself or others. He was helpless. Helpless on the ship. Because of the torrent of the storm and the, and the sea, he was helpless to lift himself out of that, that rough storm as the waves were crashing over him, over his head, and eventually pushing him down into the sea. He was helpless to free himself from the, the weeds that had surrounded him and held him like chains, pulling him down to the bottom of the sea. As he descended to the depths, he could do nothing. And so Jonah was both unwilling to be saved, and he was totally unable to save himself. Indeed, the sailors highlight this very thing for us as well, for they too were caught up in the storm, but there was nothing that they could do to save themselves from what was sure, uh, uh, what was a sure and certain destruction. Now they tried. Remember, they tried in vain. They cried out to their pagan gods, their idols formed and fashioned by the hands and imaginations of men, but they received no response. False religion and idols will not save you. They also tried saving themselves through their own works. Remember, they they first tossed the cargo overboard in order to lighten the the load of the ship that would make it lighter and, and easier to steer. But this was to no avail. And then they they rode hard, exhausting themselves, trying to steer the ship to shore. But the storm itself was actually working against them by the power of God. There was nothing that they could do, these experienced sailors, there was nothing that they could do to save themselves. Friends, Jonah and the sailors are a picture of our own spiritual condition outside of Christ. Unwilling and unable to save ourselves from destruction. Our good works, our religious rituals, 
All our efforts to save ourselves are worthless. And in fact, they only push us headlong into destruction with even greater momentum. Sinful man can't do any good thing. He certainly can't do the good thing of saving himself. And remember Jonah, remember his descent to the bottom of the sea, we mentioned was a a picture of death. Well, this too reminds us of our own spiritual condition. The Apostle Paul declares in Ephesians 2, 1, that we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're not healthy. We're not sick. We're not even close to death. But dead, dead, dead in sins. And the last time I checked, dead men can't do anything, let alone save themselves. Now, if salvation is to come, it must come from outside ourselves. As spiritually, we're totally unwilling and unable to save ourselves. So where does salvation come from? We've already noted it doesn't come from dead, lifeless idols and false gods. No, salvation is of the Lord, the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because the Lord is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, and to Him alone belongs the power, the ability, and and praise God, He has the desire to save lost sinners to Himself. We see the outworking of God's sovereignty and and salvation in Jonah's account. Right at the beginning, Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And it was God who called Jonah and approached him with this charge to go to Nineveh. And certainly Jonah certainly would not have sought out the Lord for such a mission. Remember, he didn't want any part of it. God sovereignly called Jonah... And even though Jonah refuses and takes a detour, guess what? Spoiler alert! He ends up going to Nineveh anyway. Just as God had called and planned and purposed before the foundation of the world. Indeed, it was God who called Jonah. It was God who sovereignly pursued Jonah. Again, Jonah was was running away in vain. He tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. But no matter where Jonah went, the Lord was there. He was there on the ship. He was there in the midst of the storm. Even at the bottom of the sea, even at the very gates of hell, God was there to pursue Jonah. This rebellious sinner. In God's sovereign power, He sent this storm. A most violent storm, the likes of which these experienced sailors on the ship had never seen before. Because they all ultimately understood that this was no ordinary storm. They they surmised that, that some god somewhere was upset with someone on that ship. And they were right. And so God sovereignly worked through what appears to be the random casting of lots, and yet God is even provident, uh, has a sovereign hand working through the casting of the lots so that the lot fell to Jonah, exposing Jonah and his sin before, before everyone. God is sovereign in what seems random. And God is sovereign over these forces of nature. It was the Lord alone 
who calmed the storm. He who rules the heavens and the earth ended what he began. Indeed, it was this act, it was really ultimately the calming of the storm that demonstrated most clearly to the sailors that Jonah's God was surely the one true living God and that there was no other. Their gods were all silent and never responded. But Jonah's God calmed this storm. And they were filled with overwhelming fear and bowed down and worshipped Jonah's God. And it was this revelation again that the Lord used to bring them to salvation. Not just salvation from this terrible storm, but salvation to new and everlasting life. And the, the Lord God of Israel, as they respond in faith, they offer sacrifices for their sins and then they vow to follow Jonah's God, and to serve Him. Again, their false idol gods didn't save them. Their own works and efforts didn't save them, but the Lord God saved them. This also shows us that even the sinful acts of Jonah, right, his rebellious flight from the Lord, was all according to the very purpose and plan of God to save sinners to himself even these pagan sailors on the ship and he did it all to his own glory again at the bottom of the sea it was the Lord the sovereign God who not only heard but answered Jonah's prayer and it was the Lord who appointed the means of Jonah's salvation, calling the great fish to be there at the bottom of the sea, at the very perfect time, even at the last possible moment before Jonah succumbed to death. No one else was there. No one else could hear. But God heard. God answered. God saved. And God delivered Jonah from the curse of death that Jonah surely deserved. Beloved of God, the same is certainly true for us. In our sin and rebellion against God, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Yet He graciously works out His own plan and purpose, using the means that He Himself appoints, even sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die on the cross for our sins in our place, and enduring what we alone deserved according to the good pleasure of His own will, the Lord brings salvation to spiritually dead, undeserving sinners like us. But why? Why does God save Jonah, or anyone for that matter? When our sin is deserving of His holy and just wrath and the curse for our sin, Jonah was rebellious. You see, yes, he was a prophet, but but he sinfully disobeyed the Lord. He hardened his heart and he ran away. At least he sought to run away, tried to run away from the presence of the Lord. The sailors, they were heathens. They were ignorant of the Lord. They worshipped false gods and idols whose worship at the time included a gross acts of immorality, perversion, and even the abomination of sacrificing their own children to these idols. Why would God save such wicked men? Jonah wanted death. 
Right? Indeed, he actually expected God's just judgment for his sin and rebellion when he told the sailors to toss him into the sea. And God gave him over to his sin for a time, and it was terrifying to Jonah, to the point that his boldness and rebellion was quickly overcome by this great overwhelming fear at the bottom of the sea, when in the very last possible moment, he cried out in faith to the Lord. And God not only heard his prayer, but answered it. Why? Friends, consider your own lives. Indeed, each one of you knows your own hearts and your own sins. Be they public or or sins done in secret. You know the stench and the rottenness of being dead in sins and transgressions. You know that in your own strength, in your own works, even in good deeds or, or religious rituals, that there is no salvation, that there is no hope, that there is no comfort, there is no assurance. And whether you've walked in faith for a few days or for a lifetime, you know that you're unworthy of God's grace and undeserving of being saved. And the Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth of this very thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's laying out their sins. This is what you were. But you were washed, he goes on to say. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Beloved of God, why? Why would God save such wretched wretched sinners as we are? Well, Jonah will give us the answer in chapter 4, verse 2. When he says of the Lord, You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Pure and simple. God saves us undeserving sinners, wretched and dead in our sins and transgressions, God saves us because of His abounding grace and mercy, because of His great love. And because in saving sinners who can't save themselves, God is glorified as His perfect attributes of grace, love and mercy are put on display for all to see. When these wretched ones are saved and delivered from the destruction that they deserve. Salvation is of the Lord. Well, now that we understand this most important gospel truth, we must step back and consider the warning that Jonah now gives. Because if salvation is of the Lord, 
then that means that any other way or attempts to seek salvation that's not of the Lord leads to destruction and death. Jonah says in verse 8, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Who's Jonah talking about? Well, first thought may be that he's talking about the pagan idolaters like the sailors. And certainly this warning would stand for them. Though at this time, Jonah doesn't know that those sailors were saved. The last he knew was that these sailors in vain were crying out to their false gods and idols as they sought deliverance from the storm. And that their idol gods didn't respond at all. In fact, the captain, after he uh, was uh, just kind of woke Jonah up from his slumber in the bottom of the ship, the, the captain kind of makes this hollow, kind of a very practical, uh, focused uh, plea to Jonah to cry out to his God. Because at this point, none of these other gods were working out. Well, maybe Jonah's God, maybe your God will answer because it's, everybody else is failing on this point. Every other, everybody else's God is failing. And so we might as well do, there's nothing else we could do. Well, at least let's cover all of our bases. So very practical request that the captain makes. Well, Jonah could certainly then be very well looking back on those who had their vain hopes, who were turning to idols that they would cry out to, but they would not be heard. But Jonah may also very well be referring to himself. Indeed, this is his lesson learned from this whole experience. You see, whenever we reject God's way and pursue our own, we're actually giving ourselves over to idolatry. The idolatry of self. Because we're making ourselves our own God, whom we serve and seek to uh, please. And this is precisely what Jonah did. He turned his heart away from the one true living God and served the idol of self. But idolatry, whether it's serving something that's been carved from wood or stone, or whether it's pursuing as, as a, uh, our own desires, anything that we place before us in the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is vain, it's worthless, and it gets us nowhere. The sailors cried out with great fervor and, and desperation to their idol gods, and yet there, there was nothing was heard. There was silence and response. In fact, the storm got even worse. Jonah was, is brought to the brink of death because of his self-idolatry and the hardness of his hearts. Idolatry leads to destruction. The psalmist in Psalm 115 reminds us of the, the vanity of, of seeking after idols. He says, They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. The summation being, idols are deaf and dumb. They can't do anything. And so those who put their hope and trust in them have no help. Indeed, the psalmist goes on to say this very thing. In, in verse 8, uh, following this, he says in Psalm 115, 8, those who make them, right, so those who make these idols, 
are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. In other words, if your God is a deaf and dumb idol, well then you too are deaf and dumb. Without help, without hope, without the true God in this world. This is the end of idolatry. It's self-defeating. As Jonah says here in verse 8, that those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. That is, he's saying here that there is a way of mercy, there is a way of hope, that there is help and salvation, but like fools, those who turn to idols, those who turn away from that one true way, who suppress it and who seek after the creature and serve the creature and the created things rather than the creator, they forsake the help, the only help available to them. Because God is mercy. God is love. God is abounding grace. And God has demonstrated who He is through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul makes this clear in Romans 5.8, declaring, But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those who turn to idols. And in our age, not so much... Things formed and fashioned after the hands, by the hands of men, although maybe. But things like false religion, the pursuit of pleasures, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of power, just the ultimate pursuit of self. Those who seek salvation in these idols simply multiply Greece, as we sang earlier in Psalm 16. They forsake their own mercy and they rush headlong into destruction. And so the warning here then is to repent and to turn away from sin and idolatry and turn in faith toward the Lord God who alone has mercy, who alone loves, who alone saves for His glory. Indeed, faith and repentance are really the key elements of a proper response to the proclamation of the gospel. Believing what God has done for you in Christ Jesus but then also confessing your sin, turning away from it, and turning toward God, seeking His grace and mercy for forgiveness. Now, One of the striking things, though, we must note about Jonah's prayer here. He certainly expresses faith, hope, and, and trust in God. But if you read through his prayer closely, there really isn't a clear confession of his sin, or an expression of, of sorrow and, and repentance. Again, considering, when we consider the issues of the heart uh, that Jonah still struggles with later, after his deliverance from the fish, well, we may wonder whether Jonah was truly sorrowful and repentant. Now, indeed, we know that there are some. There are some those who respond to the gospel. Oftentimes they may respond in a time of crisis at a sense of overwhelming fear. And they express an outward faith and may even show signs of, of living a new life. And, and at least for a time they read their Bibles, they spend time in prayer, they, they go to church. And they do Christian-y things. And yet, if they truly haven't repented and turned away from their sins, they're nothing more than hypocrites. They're like the seeds in the parable of the sower, that the seeds that are sown among the rocks and among the thorns, that they will either crumble under the heat of persecution 
or they'll be choked out by the cares and the concerns of the world. And so, yes, faith and repentance must always go together. So what of Jonah? The conclusion of his prayer here is really the closest thing we have to his confession and repentance. He acknowledges his heart was turned toward idolatry. He acknowledges salvation is only of the Lord, that he can't save himself. And in verse 9, he commits himself to seeking after the Lord. He says, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Note, there's two parts to his commitment here. First, he's going to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. Remember, sacrifices were what God required of the Old Testament church as an atonement for or a covering for their sins. But the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 9, reminds us that it's impossible for the blood and bulls of bulls and goats to forgive sins. And so all these sacrifices in the Old Testament look forward to the once for all perfect sacrifice of, that the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish for us. And Jonah's sacrifice here, offered in, in faith, or at least his promise to offer a sacrifice. He didn't offer the sacrifice in the belly of the fish. But his promise to offer the sacrifice in faith looks forward to Christ Jesus and the ultimate salvation that we have in him. But Jonah also makes a vow and a commitment to serve and obey the Lord. And in this case, Jonah will follow the Lord's command no matter where it leads him, even if it takes him, and it will, to the wicked city of Nineveh. Now, these are all good signs, as we know it. And it's the closest we come to of seeing any kind of true and sincere repentance in Jonah. But this reminds us that Jonah... Is far from perfect. And we'll see this continues, right? He's still in much need of sanctification. Or he's still in much need of becoming more and more holy. In fact, the book of Jonah will end with Jonah still struggling with God's plan and purpose. It's never resolved. Well, this becomes a great reminder to us of our own need of continued sanctification through the work of the Holy Spirit. As we come to faith in Christ, as we turn and repent of our sins, that we must strive in all His sufficient grace to pursue godliness and Christ-likeness. We must seek to conform our will to His most holy and perfect will until the day of Christ returns in power and glory. But friends, lest we misunderstand, we need to remember that even our sanctification is still God's work. Salvation and justification is of the Lord, but so too is sanctification, the process where we're made more and more holy. We can't save ourselves by our own good works, well, neither can we maintain our salvation by our faithfulness and our good works. No, even the work of sanctification is the Spirit of God working His grace in and through us. And the Apostle Paul reminds us of this glorious truth. Philippians 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, it seems like he's saying, we got to work. But Paul continues. We ought not to cut it short. 
Paul continues, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. It's not us working, being faithful, doing good works as we're called to do. It's the Spirit and grace of God in us, empowering us, encouraging us, challenging us to do these things. And we see this here. Jonah has been saved. He's saved from the consequences of his sin. He's saved from sure and certain death at the bottom of the sea. But where's Jonah? He's still in the belly of the fish. His prayer of, of thanksgiving and deliverance is not from the belly of the fish. It's from the death at the bottom of the sea. And here he is in the belly of the fish. He's now prayed to God, made these commitments, but there's no way for him to get out. He's alive, and that's a wonderful thing. But he's still helpless to do anything in his own strength. But God, the God who abounds in grace and mercy, the sovereign God who loves undeserving sinners, intervenes once again. He speaks to the great fish, and the fish spits Jonah out onto dry ground. He loved the God from the beginning to the end. Salvation is of the Lord. It's God who sovereignly plans, purposes, and chooses before the foundation of the world. It's God, in His great love for us, who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on the cross for our sins in our place. It's God, who in time graciously calls undeserving sinners to faith and repentance through the proclamation of the gospel. It's God who revives the dead heart, making it into a heart of, turning the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. It is God who saves. It is God who justifies. It is God who sanctifies. It is God who preserves. It is God who raises those who were once dead to true and everlasting life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is of the Lord to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks to You for Your Word and for this most important reminder. And we know that there are many people who have a variety of ideas and views and perspectives on this, but Your Word is clear. That salvation is only from You. That we're in such a desperate situation that we're not even willing to be saved because we're dead in our sins and transgressions. We can't do anything. And yet in your abounding grace and your mercy and your great love for undeserving sinners, you save us and deliver us from what we justly deserve. Father, there is how can we even respond to such a glorious gift of salvation that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord? Father, we pray that 
you would truly, by your Spirit, be applying this truth to each and every one of our hearts, that we might be drawn closer to you, that we would turn away from the idols of our own hearts, that we would turn away from our sin, and that we would come to you, knowing that it is your Spirit who works in us to do all for your glory as we strive to be faithful servants, as we seek to be great witnesses of this gospel truth to a a world that's dying in sin. And we pray, Father, that you would give us boldness to share this gospel truth with those around us, that others too might join in this glorious salvation which you have wrought. Father, we praise you and thank you. And we ask that your name would be lifted up and glorified in us, even as your name is glorified in our salvation. All to the praise of your glorious name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.